Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. Well, how about that pivot, folks? Tuesday night, President Donald Trump gave a speech to a joint session of Congress, and somehow the media managed to extract the idea that he'd finally undergone that transformation into real-life presidentialness. And then, hours later, the Trump White House was once again plunged into their customary chaos as reports emerged that Attorney General Jeff Sessions had meetings with members of the Russian government. Facts that ran against testimony he proffered during his confirmation hearings. Will the media ever learn? Well, we are going to try to paper train these puppies once again. Meanwhile... The race for the Commonwealth of Virginia's governor's mansion is one of the few very big electoral contests of 2017. In general, it's going to be a test case for whether or not the Democratic Party can recover after their 2016 beatdown. But more specifically, this race is emerging as a proving ground for whether or not Democrats can fashion their own message of economic populism in the age of Trump. Joining us to discuss this is one of the candidates in that race, former Virginia Representative Tom Perriello. And finally, while we're on the subject of what the Democrats are doing to get back in the game, we're going to take a look back at last weekend's exciting conclusion to the race to be the new chairman of the Democratic National Committee, which was won by former Obama Labor Secretary Tom Perez. The Huffington Post was on the scene for the final act. We're going to share with you what we learned about the future of the Democratic Party and whether or not it's truly ready to evolve into a party that can compete again. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Daniel Marins. Here's what happened first. Welcome in, my friends. Welcome to another edition of So That Happened, your middle segment of the human centipede that is politics. My name is Jason Lincolns. I am the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post, and I'm joined by Arthur Delaney, I believe is your name. Yes, hi. And you are Zach Carter. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I say I remember things. Sweet. So, guys, ain't this some shit? Every week is crazy in this administration. This is one of the craziest. Yeah. Pitfalls, stepping on rakes, scandal and and, and, and danger and and, and absolute what is going on. Banana peels. Banana peels galore. Anvils falling on your head from a cliff. Acme safes. (laughs) Tuesday night of this week. Uh, Donald Trump goes for a joint session of Congress. He delivers a speech uh, because he did not vomit down his shirt front. Uh, that speech was held to be, uh, I guess, a milestone of presidential oratory or at the very least the pivot that the media has been craving so much because to the media, a pivot, it's like the one ring. And uh, the, people and, were out there saying it was one of the greatest presidential yeah. speeches. Mo- most of, of the, most all of the time. media, they, these are some Smeagol ass n- mopes who want a pivot really badly. Um, <laughs> and then a day after, we are once again plunged into scandal and nonsense with multiple news reports talking about Attorney General Jeff Sessions having contact with drumroll, please. Sorry, no, there's no suspense to this Russian. Members of the Russian government. And having lied about it. And, and, and having when, lied about it when under this, when this this Congress. <laughs> when, when this came out, the people who had said Trump's speech made him the, the, the president for real, it, all those people were like Wild E. Coyote just standing with no ground underneath right. them because they ran across the edge of the cliff. Yeah. And then the sessions was dropped, and so did Wile E. Coyote. They look like assholes. Let's uh, just be clear. There's a bombshell report in the Washington Post that said Jeff Sessions had misled Congress under oath, not told the truth about meeting with the Russian ambassador during the campaign. Uh, the, the conventional term for this is lying. 
Oh, uh, that oath stuff doesn't matter, though. <laughs> it does. Uh, lying under oath yeah, to Congress. All, all the, all, everyone in the cabinet lied. We got past it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. They all the, – the Perjury is, is a, a felony. It's a felony punishable by up to five years in prison. Well, to, yeah, be, well. To, to be honest and fair, we are not yet ready to call this perjury, though it's been put on the table. Keith um, Ellison is talking about it explicitly. He's raised, sure. raised the idea that this is He's a criminal offense uh, that needs to be punished by jail time. Um, you know, look, I'm not saying that it is or it isn't, but that is that is something the Democrats are talking about. And the argument is, has shifted within a matter of hours from, oh, my God, is this true, to should he recuse himself from investigations into Trump's uh, Russian activities and connections? Or, or should he the be, Or should he be yeah. removed and now, from and now that's what this is really about, the ongoing roiling – Weird, hard to understand connection between the Trump campaign and administration and Russia. And critical, critical to what we're talking about, the Trump administration has been an ongoing, roiling, weird administration. That has been what soccer enthusiasts call the run of play. And the speech was a momentary goal against the run of play. Let's back up and talk about Tuesday night's address because this is where – this whole thing begins. I watched the Tuesday night address and my persistent thought was that nothing much had changed with Trump. We, I mean, we've seen him read things calmly before. You know, we know that it's just sort of a, an attitudinal change. And yet, and yet during that speech, he unveiled a policy that had no rational basis in, 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 in anything regarding the real world, where he was essentially going to uh, create a new agency at the Department of Justice solely for the purpose of demonizing immigrants. Yes, to, to literally list their crimes. Yes, pitching it as support for people who've been victimized by criminals in the undocumented immigrant community. Now, I've been in America for a little bit, and what I've noticed is that people who are the victims of crime already get a ton of support from the state. Um, anything an undocumented immigrant can do, there's a statute uh, – criminally speaking, there's a statute against it. They're not inventing new crime. I mean the historical resonance of it is very 1930s. And, and the immigrant community is statistically speaking vastly more law-abiding than the rest of us native-born idiots. So this is a purely racist and demonizing policy that I expected <laughs> once it was voiced would be treated by the media as – a, a, a real huge break in norms. No, no, it wasn't though. Completely. No, he's he is the president because he trotted out he trotted out the widow of a Navy SEAL who was killed in a botched raid in Yemen that he ordered and refuses to take responsibility for or answer questions about. He said on Monday the generals they lost Ryan. Right. <laughs> I mean to- if only we had a commander in chief or something. Uh, now, now to be to be totally clear, I am not at all averse to attention being paid to the to the widows of our soldiers. It's nice, and I'm not averse to acclaiming them in public. But the real thing that was extraordinary is that there was a, an applause break, and Donald Trump essentially accepted the applause. Appreciate the congrats he did from the stage. That was a record. This dead soldier, who I won't talk about, who I won't answer substantive questions about, is looking down and he's happy because you guys applauded for two minutes. I did that. Boom, I'm the greatest. I was like, okay, that soldier maybe would have preferred to be alive right now. Just a guess. Everyone probably in this world would prefer to have that soldier here with us. I, I think that and I was- thought about if Barack Obama had pulled a stunt like that, he would he would have been stripped naked and paraded down Constitution Avenue, being scourged, run out of town. That is quite an image. But that I, is really it, it quite was an image. it was this moment that uh, more than any other caused people to think Trump had really turned a corner, and that was crazy to me. I, I agree. It, it was one of many strange moments during the speech. Leaving aside the fact that. The big, the only real big policy rollout, because most of the time when Trump was talking about policy, he was essentially like really shoveling the buck onto Republicans, being like, oh, Obamacare, that's y'all's problem. Act, do something. Right. I've got no guidance for you. Right. Um, aside from announcing this crazy racist policy and like 
Merit-based uh, immigration. This weird st- – <laughs> that's, that's an interesting term. Um, and and this, this crazy stunt that he pulled with, with, the, with, the, with, the, with a dead soldier, I didn't see much there that was different. But the next day, everyone was like, oh, my God, he's finally oh, The Trump administration ex- explicitly was telling reporters, we don't understand why everyone is gushing about this. There was no change in tone or policy. There wasn't. I mean, yeah, read, they didn't understand. I read the speech as he was delivering it before he finished, and I was like, well, I don't know what to even pull out from this because this is all things he said before, for the most part. Yeah, and yeah. including, for example, lamenting that ninety-four million people are not in the labor force, and a welter, <laughs> a welter of lies on top of all that. Which, by the way, the, the ninety-four million—that's that's all the retired people and the disabled people and I kids. Mean, they're, not, right, they're not supposed to be in the workforce. Yeah, it right. was. That's it what was, being retired is all about. It was mostly. <laughs> it was mostly what I would call a ludicrous display, and yet everyone the next day was was um, was pretty much flipping their legs over the fact that like somehow he had developed some emotional maturity, and I was like, "Huh? What?" Here's here's a weird theory of mine. I just want to say this. One thing that was missing from Donald Trump's hour-long oration, and it's unique because if you get Donald Trump talking for more than fifteen minutes, he usually brings it up. Is that he didn't. At any time during this joint session, talk about fake news or liars in the media or how the media were the enemy of the people. All of that stuff went away. And I think that if you go back and look at the history of every time the media has declared the pivot is on, you will probably see coincidentally a softening of his rhetoric toward the media. One of the things that's always been kind of grotesque about the way the media has treated Donald Trump is that he'll demonize Mexicans. The media says, oh, well, that's interesting. That's interesting. Woo, this could be a problem for him. He demonizes Muslims. The media says, oh, well, that's interesting. Hmm, I wonder if he'll win election. Say things like that. Well, that could be a problem for him. Well, it's really a problem for Muslims and Mexicans. But as soon as Donald Trump starts talking about opening up the libel laws or calling media the American people, suddenly garters start popping all over this fucking town. And we start thinking, wow, he could be be a real threat to institutions, this guy. And all he has to do is put that away for a minute, for a minute, for one hot minute. That's like 70 minutes. And suddenly the media is like, they're going to give him two minutes of applause too. You know, my, my garters have popped. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. And now we get to the next day. The next day where all that fulsome goddamn praise of his speech blew up in everyone's face. In a predictable way. I mean uh, Jeff Sessions is um, – it's interesting too because Sessions is really part of – he's really at the heart of the administration's sort of ideological and policymaking uh, you know, core. You know, Michael Flynn, the national security advisor who was ousted for, you know, undisclosed or <laughs> lying about ties to Russia, contacts with the Russian government. Same th- um, yeah, lying about contacts with the Russian government. Same guy. Yeah. Ambassador. Yeah, but Flynn was a sort of peripheral figure. He was a, dr- he was a Trump supporter. Um, but but he wasn't like you know the brain trust of the of the administration. Sessions Sessions really is one of the core figures. For, and let's for, just for be clear. He, he spoke to the Russian ambassador in September, was asked about whether he had had any contact with any Russian officials whatsoever in the course of his confirmation, and he simply said no. Yeah. And he, we don't know why he lied about it, but he met with he them tw- he met with them twice. He 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 lied about it in <laughs> under oath verbally to the committee and then in a written a written response to a ex- very explicit could not have been clearer set of written questions said no he said no he had not when well, he in fact we had two contacts and so we don't know why but it's damn sure worth finding out a little more this is what's so galling to me there's been pretty much on a daily basis we have been we've had a a five-ton feed bag of chaos and nonsense strapped to our faces over this administration. He keeps stepping on rakes and screwing up. I think that I think up until the moment he managed to read a speech using a teleprompter, the 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 only time there wasn't like pure chaos coming out of the White House was the two hours he was watching Finding Dory in the White House like entertainment room. Other than that, I feel it is bad been, for the people who made that movie. You know? uh, yeah, like, there's fully, nothing wrong with that movie. Yeah, it's fully. <laughs> they're now fully associated with like the cartoon they showed Donald Trump to get him to calm down for a couple hours. It's been it's been hot nonsense. And again, it's it's like 
utterly predictable that the next turn of the screw is going to be some kind of explosion of like go go easy there with the metaphors explosions yeah. make me nervous these sorry days. yeah have <laughs> a collapsing scenery but it's amazing it's amazing that after some five weeks of the trump administration the media could have been like oh, okay everything's cool now everything's settled down it's gonna be all presidential from here on out and you know they look they look dumb today they look dumb today yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We have a really great show. Uh, we're going to be talking about the DNC race. And we have Tom Piriello on the show today. Uh, he is a man running for governor of Virginia in one of the only elections happening this year that's not a special. So we want to stick around and listen to him. We'll be right back. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, joined as always by Arthur Delaney. And we have a very special guest today. He is running for governor of the great state of Virginia, former Congressman Tom Perriello. Thanks for being with us, Tom. Thank you. So I remember in 2008, people popping champagne corks on the downtown mall in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, a man named Barack Obama had just been elected president. And you had just been elected to Congress from a district that had been essentially gerrymandered to be impossible for Democrats to win. Um, people were really happy that night in Charlottesville. But now Donald Trump is president. So what happened? Wow, that's a big period of time. A few things happened in that period. Um, but it was. It was a fun night. Uh, for those who don't know, I was able to defeat um, Virgil Goode, who was sort of the Islamophobe in chief at that point, who when Keith Ellison had gotten elected as the first Muslim in Congress, Virgil had gone down to the floor to give a speech saying he shouldn't be allowed to get sworn in on the Quran. And Keith Ellison uh, flipped the script on him by going and getting uh, Thomas Jefferson's copy of the Quran out of the Library of Congress and getting sworn in on that. Good uh, times. Yes. <laughs> Epic yes, burn. indeed. Um, and uh, so he was one of the first people to reach out to me when I was still 36 percent behind in that race. So I think one of the things we have to remember is you know, the roots of hate and bigotry have been around for some time. They certainly go back to our founding and before. Um, but that's not a reason to forget the fact that progress is still happening as hard as it is to see. In Virginia on election night, for example, Nearly 60 percent of Virginians who went to the polls uh, actually voted against Trump. Uh, he did worse than any Republican presidential candidate in Virginia in my lifetime. Uh, so I think while we have some serious problems there that I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, you know, within our little commonwealth, uh, it was pretty cool to see that that kind of race and bigotry um, no longer appeals at least to a majority of Virginians. But talk about what went – what's changed in our country economically because there's been a lot of discussion that economically things aren't as satisfactory as they ought to be. Yeah, I mean, look, I think we've been on a bit of a collision course below the surface on two trends. Uh, one has been 
really the disappearance of work or the rise of radical inequality. Um, and the second has been the resurgence of racial tension and, and a sort of a new tribalism. I think I've worked all over the world in the last few years and we actually see these two trends all over the place. And Trump, of course, is the toxic mix of the worst of those two trends. We do have to look at very serious economic challenges as we did uh, in the 5th District. The three I see today though are not uh, really the globalization and outsourcing as much, um, which was really the problem over the last 20 years. But it's really been the remonopolization of the economy, uh, automation, and exclusion. Those are the three forces that I see that have been choking people out. If you look, for example, during the Clinton recovery, about 70 percent of the job growth was in small and medium-sized towns and counties. Almost none of the recovery uh, this time was in those areas. So as a governor, what do you do to help people? Well, one of the things is actually uh, exciting because it gets back to something else we all care about, which is climate change, which is to look at decentralized energy production. We actually need to get away from some of the monopoly approaches on energy and food production and get back to giving smaller businesses and farmers a chance to be part of that. I came out against two controversial gas pipelines in Virginia um, in part because of the climate impact, but in part because it's $6.7 billion of wasted money to create fewer jobs than we could create by putting people to work, weatherizing homes and building stock, taking wind and solar to scale, helping farmers to capture methane coming off of uh, cow manure to become their own second crop. There's a huge opportunity out there. If you look at the right-wing governor in North Carolina recently who did all the terrible stuff from gutting education to the bathroom bills, one of his only failures was pulling back the renewable energy standard. And the reason he couldn't do it was that it had created too many jobs in too many districts. And these very red legislators around the state said, no way are we pulling these things back. These are the, the businesses that are growing locally. So I actually think we need to think bolder about how to um, decentralize some of that economic production. Well, I, so you said two things there that jumped out at me, um, one that I like and one that I don't like as much. The, um, the, the remonopolization of the economy, I think, is something that's picking up some steam here in, in sort of like D.C. intelligentsia. And I think it's very clearly true that this is happening. You know, you have like four big meat producers that control almost all of American agriculture, for instance. Two beer um, companies. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, Over 90% of beer production. And look at the impact of those small breweries around Virginia. It's been enormous. And that's a tiny part of the market. So, so what do you do? I mean, what, what is the way to combat this, this remonopolization. I mean, people usually talk about antitrust laws, uh, you know, blocking mergers, but we, we already have the problem. It's not like, it's not like we need to prevent future mergers. Like it's already out there. I think some of it as governor is how much time you spend trying to land the great white whale corporation that's going to change a community versus helping smaller businesses to grow out. What we know now is that growth tracks with the disposable income of the working and middle class. It doesn't trickle down. It actually trickles up, if anything. So if we've focused as much attention on helping those, helping people start a business or helping small businesses to add someone on the payroll, uh, we would be going in a better direction than what we tend to do, whether it's stadiums or other things uh, in bringing people in. Now, as a governor, I'll look for those opportunities, certainly. Um, but I think really what we need to do is find the way to help with that. The other thing I think we do have to do, and here's a place I think liberals uh, probably have been changing their thinking, um, is we have to get away from the sense that there are only two tracks into the economy, a college degree or the other track. We need about 12 tracks into the economy. Uh, there are apprenticeship programs that our unions already run where you actually start to make a living wage on the job as you're training and you come out making $30, $40, $50 an hour after a journeyman process. So you see people going into the trades who actually make more money and have less debt than a lot of people with college degrees. Now, we also want to make the college degrees affordable, but we've prioritized on our platform two years of free community college skills and training program or apprenticeship program to give people multiple options. That can include a two plus two where you do the community college and then matriculate into the university um, and can make that more affordable. Uh, Tom Perriello, you've pitched your campaign in the Democratic primary, which is uh, in, in June. June 13th. You are the anti-Trump candidate. Now, how, as a governor, are you leading the resistance to Trump? 
Well, we've already been doing so. If you look at how we launched the campaign, we were out at Dulles Airport. We've been at the march. We've called it the most viciously racist campaign of my lifetime, which it is. Um, and I think when I first did so, a lot of the pundits around Virginia said, you know, uh, well, Trump is not a local issue. It's not a Virginia issue. And I told some of them, like, that is a really elite perspective. If you are in the African-American community, the choice of Jeff Sessions is a very local issue. If you ha are in or have friends in the immigrant community, uh, these acts by Donald Trump are as local as it gets. We we called Trump racist. It didn't work. <laughs> he became yeah. president. So uh, it you know I think it is important though to remember nearly sixty percent of Virginians rejected that kind of hate and division, and we're not going to concede what Virginia values are uh, on that point. The other thing though, and I've, I've said this a lot, I think in the resistance we have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to be fearless in calling out and not normalizing hate, bigotry, and threats to the Constitution. But we also have to offer a better vision of inclusive economic growth. I'm going out and spending time in Trump country and with Trump voters. And always call out you know, bigotry if you see it, but also show that we have a better plan and I don't think the Democratic Party has. If you look at the returns in Virginia, I mentioned the good news. Nearly 60 percent voted against Trump. But a majority also showed up and voted against the Democratic candidate even though she would have been a great president. I think we have to understand that Democrats uh, cannot run on a status quo message and we have to understand how much pain and disruption there's been in the economy and have a better set of ideas. If we don't well, – I want to dig, dig down on that because you mentioned automation earlier and this is something that you know, like Wired magazine is running features saying you know, robots are going to be the death of the middle class and all this stuff. But if you look at the statistics, I mean productivity is the stat which, which measures automation. You know, the higher the productivity is, you know, the more robots there are. But productivity growth has been slowing for a dozen years. It actually fell last year. Why is automation the problem and not something like, say, trade agreements? So I've been very critical of the trade agreements and I think this is one of the reasons I have some – perhaps some credibility to push back on uh, where I think some of the progressive thinking on this is. I agree with the progressive economists and thinkers that we have to focus on consolidation and if you just talk about automation, you're missing the bigger piece of the puzzle. But I fear that some of them are so focused on the fact that no one will talk about that that they're actually taking way too optimistic of a view of automation. So I actually tend to have a little bit of a foot in both camps in the nerd conversation conversation going on up here. Uh, I think that people, if you look at where this is going, and it is a guess uh, based on best evidence, I think we're going to get to deep learning and AI and other things faster than we think. I think the disruptions are going to be deeper than we think. And when people talk about, well, we went through these other periods before, they forget how painful they were. Those transitions were freaking awful for a lot of people whose entire life's uh, you know, economy, lifestyle, uh, uh, income were disrupted. And this I think is going to be deeper and faster than that. So I think for progressives, I understand why we want to focus on consolidation. But to project that on to being overly optimistic about automation and where that's going over the next 10 years I think would be a mistake. We'll say there's a plant in Virginia that wants to close and fire all its workers who don't have college degrees. Would you try to strike a deal a la Trump and Mike Pence to somehow keep that factory there or would you just say, you know, this is the way things are going. It's not profitable to have people doing work that robots can do. Well, the carrier con job is the perfect example of why I think we have to keep automation as part of the conversation. As you probably know, the $7.5 million of tax credits that were used to quote unquote save those few hundred jobs, the CEO – you know, noted a couple days later, he was just going to use that money to automate the remaining factory. So essentially, by not paying attention to that issue, uh, what they did was use taxpayers to subsidize the death of additional manufacturing jobs in America. So these dynamics do go hand in hand. Um, and I think that's why we have to look at the issue of who's got negotiating power in that situation. For all of the other. The, but at the macro level, I mean, the stats just don't support this story. I mean, the, the, the productivity That's growth is not true. Is, is of the 5.7 million uh, manufacturing jobs that were lost in the last 10 years, 85% of them were lost to technology, not to outsourcing. Outsourcing is still a problem, but I think are, that's – well, I mean, we, we can argue about that until the cows come home, but I, th I think that's a disputed, you, I, I, a disputed I'm just going to warn you. I think you are making the exact argument that elites made about NAFTA. 
These are the the very same arguments were made to defend NAFTA. People looked at that Hector Lin model and they said, oh, look, it's going to work out this way and this way and the distributions are going to be clear and we've done all this before and globalization is good and da, 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 da. Your assumptions you're building into that model about the trend lines I think are the same ones that people got wrong about NAFTA back in the day. I don't think that's right, but I think we've got to move on to other <laughs> other issues here. I think I think you can you can look at the number of manufacturing jobs that we have in the United States. They don't plunge after NAFTA. They plunge after China PNTR in 2000. Um, can put those. Yeah. I'm agreeing with you about the broader tw- trend of globalization and, and underestimating what the disruptive costs of that were going to be. Guys, guys. <laughs> All right. So, so we, we've talked a little bit about um, about the economy. We've talked about about the Trump resistance. Um, let's talk about your opponent. I mean, you're the Democrat in this race. What? Why? Why should people support you instead of instead of your opponent? Well, you know, the nice thing about Ed Gillespie, who's the likely Republican nominee, is that he really is everything Trump voters hate about their own party. Uh, so when I go out and talk to Trump voters, you know, some guy who was all about protecting K Street and protecting Wall Street and selling out the working class, backing the very bad trade deals that we just talked about, um, accelerating the globalization and outsourcing, I think there's a, there is a real opportunity for us if the contrast is a pragmatic populist like me against Gillespie uh, that we can make real gains in the those areas. But we've got to be able to go out and show up. We have to listen and we have to have a set of solutions that may be different than what they're um, used to hearing about from uh, Democrats. What's what's the nastiest thing you can say about your Democratic opponent in the primary? Oh, um, uh, I don't really think of Ralph Northam as my opponent in the primary. Uh, he's a nice guy. He's the sitting lieutenant governor. My biggest uh, challenge in the primary is lack of awareness that a primary is going on. Uh, you know, trying to convince people who are focused on resisting Trump that state elections is is part of the resistance. Um, you asked earlier about what a governor can do. Um, we've already seen um, progressive governors and attorneys general, including Mark Herring in Virginia, be incredibly creative about looking at ways to challenge uh, these uh, executive orders and other things coming from Donald Trump about looking at maximizing state authority to for noncompliance. And there is some irony here, of course, because uh, you know I've spent my life coming from the South, seeing states' rights as being very much the dog whistle or policy of the right, um, going back to massive resistance that refused to integrate the schools in, in the town I grew up in um, a little after my time or a little before my time. Um, and so here we are now looking at the states' rights arguments uh, against Trump. Mm-hmm. But this ma- this matters a great deal. You know, uh, I'll let others talk about uh, about Ralph Northam. I think you know this week we did find out that he had voted for George W. Bush twice uh, back in at a time when um, you know we were trying to fight against the very massive tax cuts for the rich that got us into this economic trouble and the role. Well, you guys, I mean, you guys both have this sort of uh, compromising stuff in in your political past, doesn't it? Isn't that kind of a wash? And I, I'm referring to you know the 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 abortion stuff I, and the Affordable Care Act that you voted for, which you've said you regretted. Yeah, no. When I was in Congress, the uh, you know I was really proud, despite coming from a, a very conservative district, not just to fight for the stimulus, but to fight for the climate change bill, to fight for the Affordable Care Act, to support the Dream Act, um, to really stand up against uh, the kind of corruption from Wall Street. I had promised my uh, constituents that I would respect the Hyde Amendment inside the Affordable Care Act. I've said that I regret that pledge and didn't just regret it. I then went on to run a progressive national nonprofit organization that fought trap laws in Virginia and around the country. So those Bush votes, those are worse. Uh, look, I think voters are going to make their own decisions on that. What people want to see right now, I think, is again uh, that willingness to stand up to Trump and limit those uh, really unconscionable and unconstitutional moves, but also have a positive vision. Um, well, I, I want to talk about before we have to wrap. I want to talk about uh, one of your Wall Street votes. I think you were the only person in Congress who voted against the Dodd Frank Act because it was too weak. Yeah, um, fine gold too. Right, okay, so in the House, sorry. Yes, uh, in. In the past few weeks, we've seen a lot of CEOs sitting down meeting with Donald Trump to try to repeal Dodd-Frank. Um, what responsibilities do people like Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, have uh, to these bro- to like sort of broader American values about inclusiveness and democracy? Uh, sh- should they be should they be meeting with Donald Trump uh, to try to advance their own interests uh, with with a Dodd-Frank repeal? 
Uh, look, I think that repealing Dodd-Frank, even though it was too weak, would be disastrous. It at least went part of the way in trying to uh, get this sort of systemic risk uh, out of our economy, um, put in back some of the measures that we'd seen before, even if we didn't see full restoration of, of Glass-Steagall. You know, some of the things concerned me at the time about potential poison pills on the Consumer Protection Agency, which was one of the best parts of Dodd-Frank, we're now seeing maybe coming to fruition. So we should fight as hard as we can to try to defend those. Uh, you know, uh, Jamie Dimon's going to do what he's going to do. And I think people need to um, figure out and see, and I think it's incumbent on us to be part of this, to make sure those people who supported Donald Trump understand what that means. And I think we absolutely want to be calling out, as we've done, the travel ban and other measures. Um, but it's harder, as you know, to get to break through the news on some of these economic questions about how people's pensions and home values are being put back at risk uh, by what uh, Trump's doing out there. And we need to speak to that as well. All right. Tom Perio, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And we'll be right back. Hello, So That Happened listeners. I want to just take a moment to ask you to do a few small favors. First, if you like the show and want to help more people find it, go over to iTunes and just leave us a review. Every review we get bumps the show a little bit higher in the podcast charts. It does make a difference, and it's going to help us build this community. Second, are there issues you'd like us to address? People you think we should talk to, you should drop us an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. We really do appreciate your suggestions, and we often follow up on stories, and we just like hearing feedback and criticism. So we'd love to hear from you specifically, because you're the people that matter the most to us. Now, back to the show. And we're back. And we're going to return once again to a periodic check-in with the good folks at the Democratic National Committee. Ba-ba! Yeah. Yeah, it's a real good time uh, to be had if you're a Democrat. Uh, this is ratings gold. Total ratings gold. Joining us to talk about this got Zach Carter, of course. Hey, everybody. And uh, we're also bringing in our pal Daniel Marins. Hey, guys. Uh, Daniel, you were at the big, 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 big vote. That took place where I, I think it was a it was a, a vote for the president of a small country. That's the way it felt. It, uh, I'm not kidding. We're talking, of course, about the vote for the next official leader of the Democratic Party, the DNC chairman. Right. Which was won by former Obama Labor Secretary Tom Perez in a very close race with uh, Minnesota Representative Keith Ellison. What was the mood like during the, the last stages of, of this decision? Because we've been sort of like building this up as a somewhat momentous moment, momentous moment, momentous decision for the Democrats, uh, despite the fact that we've we've often found it difficult to kind of like parse the real ideological differences between Perez and Ellison. The divide was always sort of one of territorial pissings, the Obama administration trying to uh, put their stamp on the future of the DNC. Uh, the only reason Perez is running in the first place was to sort of manifest uh, continued muscle of the Obama White House in perpetuity. Uh, so how how did this all play out, you know, right there in the moment in the room? Well, look, the, the last few days, last few weeks even of this race were pretty contentious and there was some nasty stuff. I mean, there were – there were, uh, of course, Alan Dershowitz saying, I'll leave the Democratic Party because Keith Ellison's anti-Semitic at the, at the last minute. And there were a bunch of sort of chain emails going around with, with similar effects. Obviously, that had played a role earlier in the race. Very Trumpy. Very Trumpy. Right. Yeah. Th- though, of course, that wasn't, that wasn't officially associated in any way with the press campaign. And I, and I, I actually genuinely believe that, that they didn't have their fingerprints on any of that, though maybe other Democratic Party officials in their corner did. Um, and and of course the the Ellison folks were also twisting arms. I, I mean, what I definitely heard from DNC members was that th- there were the, the quantity potentially of of calls and emails and lobbying from organized labor, from individual progressive activists, from figures in the Ellison camp, from people like Senator Al Franken, from from Senator Bernie Sanders, was just enormous. Um, and. And then you, of course, had figures like Valerie Jarrett and reportedly, according to Politico, even Barack Obama literally calling people on the, on on that convention floor. So so there was that element of that and that was kind of going on beneath the surface and talking to people I could kind of suss that out. But at the same time, the mood at, at, at the convention was 
really positive and and almost buoyant. And I thought that one of the the telling moments was on Friday. I went to an event that was hosted by uh, vi- a vice chair candidate, Liz Jaff, who's sort of a young DC techie who works for CrowdPack, and she got a lot of buzz and excitement in the race. She ultimately did not win in one of the at-large seats, but at-large vice chair seats. But she had a panel there uh, of. I think it was eight or nine people. You had folks like Alicia Garcia from the Movement for Black Lives, Winnie Wong from the People for Bernie Sanders, and then the 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 woman who ran who who started run run for something and, and sort of these new post inauguration upstart groups. And that room was just packed with maybe two hundred DNC members because they're so jazzed about this activism movement. And at least the theme that you get, particularly from from those that, that were backing Perez or, or might be what you might call the more establishment mainstream wing of the party, is that Donald Trump will solve will, – will, is, is the answer to these divisions. And we're all, we're all revved up and excited. There's a ton of passion here. We don't necessarily need to pay heed to some of these, these primary uh, – presidential primary era divisions. And I, I thought that was kind of interesting. I also thought it was just interesting that many, many members, including many members who were, who were backing Keith Ellison, really, really were extremely insistent that their votes were not based on policy ideology or any kind of a party faction type thing dating back to the primary. Now, I, I had some skepticism about that. Sure. And, and sure yeah, that's enough. That's ridiculous. Come on. I mean, give me a break. <laughs> I, the, you know, the, the, the only reason that Perez is in this race, right, is because the Obama administration wanted to poke Keith Ellison and the Sanders wing of the, of the party in the eye. That's the only reason Perez was pushed into the race. The argument for his candidacy never really made any sense. People were insisting the entire time that he's just as progressive as Keith Ellison. There's no real ideological d- difference between the two of them. It, 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 was, it was clearly a, a faction war within the Democratic Party, which the Obama administration uh, you know, denied from the get-go, even as they were, you know, they, they were explicitly denying repeatedly that they wanted Perez to be in this race as the administration was pushing him and calling people and trying, trying to secure his victory. And I think it's remarkable that the, this, race, this race was pretty close. I mean, I think the final vote was 235 to 200, something like that, and in favor of Perez. That happened despite the fact that pretty much every single left-of-center publication in the United States was saying, what are we doing? Give this thing to Ellison already. We don't need to have this kind of this kind of division. I mean, we're talking about Vox, The Nation, Deadspin, which used to be Gawker, uh, uh, The Intercept. I mean, when Vox and The Intercept agree on something you, in Democratic Party politics, you <laughs> know pretty, that there is – pretty remarkable. There's right. a genuine consensus Sure, the out argument there. for Ellison was always let's just bury the hatchet, bring this young movement into the party – and let it work its will because they could definitely use that energy. And also, I mean, I, I hate to break it to old-time establishment Democrats, but the ship of Clintonism has sailed. It's never coming back to port. It's, it's important to, to, to emphasize that there really isn't a big ideological divide between these guys. I mean, sure, Perez, of course. Perez is not like a – It, it not exists, like a horrible monster, It's not right? non-existent. I think that's important to point out. Like, but, but in a vacuum, in a vacuum, if we're not talking about the DNC race and we're, and we're not talking about what the Obama White House did to put Perez in this race, if we're just looking at Perez as, as a thing apart from all this Michigas, you know, we see a guy who put in a lot of hours for the labor movement, more than a lot of Democrats. Oh, he's more he than was, an app, more than a lot of Democrats. He's a pro-labor Democrat. I, I think that look, and, and if I just may put just a, a little bit of an asterisk, I'll be a little more careful that, than Zach in the way I characterize it, just in the sense that we don't know the hypotheticals of of what Perez was considering had he not been urged to run by the Obama administration. That you know, obviously, he's looking for a, a new way to 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 remain active in the party and party politics. But setting that setting that aside, uh, I think I think that the issue is one of a disconnect because. You have, on the one hand, a lot of these new DNC members that are coming in, many of whom were turned on to presidential politics, in some cases by the Bernie Sanders campaign. Mm -hmm. But in other cases, they're just younger and newer and generally a little bit more progressive. And they're more in touch with the activist grassroots. And some of these older DNC members are basically just people for whom the Democratic Party – has been a part of their identity, been a part of how they spend their money in terms of political donations, use their influence. It's something they do and they've done for decades in some cases. And so they don't necessarily have their ear to the ground and are aware of that impact and what the impact of of Mm -hmm. sort of denying activists that point of entry would be. 
I did. I did finally a- after the after the election results were called. I finally got some members to basically admit to me. Yeah, Keith Ellison was too left wing and his camp was too left wing and we felt like this was a Bernie Sanders takeover. But look, the fact of the matter is, I think that these things are kind of manifest subtly or subconsciously that maybe that that Perez kind of has a way of of code switching in a way that for example, Keith Ellison did not mm-hmm. that Keith Ellison was followed at every one of his regional forum events by just a a boisterous gaggle of of grassroots activists not sort of recruited by the campaign in the same way that that some of the other folks following the other campaigns were and that that actually that kind of spoke to people or it turned some people off and 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 I think um on, on top on top of that they genuinely do have these concerns about can you get the money to my state party can you run this ship competently and and I I think that they genuinely did, did look at like sort of his pitch of I, I've turned around the Department of Labor. I turned around the, the Civil Rights Division. Which, you know, the, the Department of Labor typically is is sort of a lower tier cabinet agency, right? They're not usually invited to sort of the big economic policy yeah, decision yeah, yeah, making right. uh, pr- process. And and under Perez, they they really were in the room. They were there with the Treasury Secretary, uh, with the Commerce Secretary on 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 actually big big ideas. And I think the argument for competency. Uh, you know, it, it, it does matter, uh, and it's and it's you know there's 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 something persuasive about it when Ellison basically gets into the race with you know holding four aces, getting endorsed by Chuck Schumer, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie right. Sanders, Vox, the Intercept. You, know, yeah. you got all of that stuff, and <laughs> yeah. you still can't put it away. I mean, I think there is a legitimate argument that like you know may, maybe he's not the right the, the right guy to competently lead this thing. Um, but but I also think I mean Dan, what what, what was your perspective of the divide among the you know the 440 something DNC members who voted one way or another i mean were there w- were there any sort of clear trends about people who were backing perez instead of right. people who were backing ellison well i, I look the, the the most common responses were were the thing were were literally repetitions of perez and ellison respective campaign talking points well ellison is an ellison is an organizer ellison is a is a grassroots guy he has the power to to seize this moment this moment of people out in the streets and connect that with the party perez has has the has the record to turn around this sort of moribund dysfunctional organization but I, look i think that uh, under 40 that was a clear divide Younger people. Oh, 100%. Much, much more pro Ellison. I think that Ellison had a a much larger share of state party chairs, is my understanding, actually, because of of their sort of distrust of of, of legacy DNC policies and anything associated with with previous administrations. I, I think. There were obviously a number. Of, I mean, Ellison had to have some sort of Clinton supporters, some people that you know weren't just out and out Bernie Kratz in his right. corner as well. But th- but they tended to again, again. I think that Ellison supporters understood the public discourse that was that was going on outside about the race. Yeah. Even if they didn't, even if they insisted to me over and over again, this isn't a proxy battle. We're not all Bernie supporters. I said, well. The, the meaning of proxy battle could be beyond just Bernie. It's, it, it could also be about party faction. They were more likely to talk about things like money and politics mm-hmm. and getting that out. And obviously, Zach, you and I, in terms of covering this race, obviously Keith Ellison ended up walking it back a little bit. But initially, when he was sitting here at this table, he told us that he wanted to reinstate Obama's ban on, on lobbyist donations. And that, of course, played out on, on, on the floor of that on of the, the election yeah. where, where – there was a resolution introduced by Christine Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's daughter, and a delegate from uh, and a voting member from California, a number of other people like Larry Cohen from Our Revolution, who, which effectively, now they weren't that great about telling me jot and tittle exactly what part of their resolution. I have never heard the phrase jot and tittle. Before jot and tittle, in my yes. Life. We use that all the time. I, I believe now. it's from I believe it's from the New Testament, um, <laughs> but which I'm no expert in. <laughs> I guess but, I should know more about that stuff, uh, but. <laughs> But 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 basically that 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 it was it was it was ban- they, they claimed it was a reinstatement of the Obama era ban that it w- that it would have uh, that it would have effectively banned corporate PAC donations it would have forbade the DNC chair from appointing at large members who are federal lobbyists yeah. and all and all these sorts of things and it went down in very dramatic fashion now, there was a lot of confusion about the details would Planned Parenthood lobbyists be banned I mean there were people <laughs> speaking insane. up speaking up about it in those terms but there are also people speaking up and basically just saying there's nothing wrong with money in politics yeah and 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 oh we 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 need to find a way to pay the bills and our corporate friends who who are going after North Carolina for their for their transgender law. How can we then turn down their money was, was effectively the argument. I think those kinds of questions 
are going to continue to play out because now that resolution goes to the DNC executive right. committee. Th- those are the kinds of things that, that Nebraska Democratic Party, Democratic Party chair and Sander Nista and Ellison Nista, Jane Kleb was saying will be a real test for Tom Perez in the coming months. So let me, so let me ask you this. There's, there's lots of ways to look at this race. Bernie faction versus Hillary faction, a party's heart versus a party's brain. In the end, these two guys, Ellison and Perez, they're, they're actually friends. Perez's his first act was to name Keith as his, as his vice chair. Deputy chair. Yeah. Deputy chair. New position that he created, right? Right. Right. So not clear if it actually means anything, but it, but it, it was an olive branch. Is it possible? Out of the is gate. it possible in the end to have maybe the best of both worlds in this? I guess, I guess the, the real question is, did you take from all this experience the idea that the Democratic National Committee is constitutionally ready to evolve in some way? Huh. <laughs> Tough question. I, I, Are they ready to move forward? Are they ready to be different? Are they ready to embrace some change? Answer wrong and we pull out your fingernails, Marin. Yeah. Give us the jot and the tittle. I mean, you know, it, Okay. They are ready to embrace the activist grassroots movement that has sprung up spontaneously to respond to Donald Trump. But it is much easier to form a unified front against something like a travel ban that's effectively a Muslim ban than it is to agree on things like money and politics, on future international trade deals, on getting tough on the banks. Those, those, those kinds of economic issues, issues of authenticity and accountability are, are much more difficult. And I think that that fight is going to be had one way or another. Now, is the DNC changing whole, whole hog? It's changing because the members are changing and progressive activists have realized, hey, there's a process to become a DNC member and we just weren't in the game before and they're out organizing yeah, right. the moderate they, folks. From complaining about superdelegates to realizing they could become one. I, I just want to drop one shout out if I can. All right, yeah. Uh, Zoe Stein, as a young woman I met earlier this week, who said that she's a big fan of the show. Thanks for listening, Zoe. She's a grad student at Arizona State. Yeah, Zoe, thank you for listening to the Hi, show. Um, that was I, I, th- I, th- I think you articulated that really great. All right, we got to uh, split, um, but we will be right back. Thanks. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week we were joined by Virginia gubernatorial candidate Tom Perriello, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Daniel Marins. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Please check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts at the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send us an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 